Welcome. Thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. Today's sermon focuses on Israel's return from exile. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, A Restored Kingdom, Sort of. series of the Old Testament that we've been doing only one more Sunday. Next week we finish up, I know that seems kind of crazy, entire Old Testament in this period of time. Um, Today we pick up kind of in the storyline looking at uh, God's people coming back to the land they had been exiled from. Next week we'll finish out in the book of Malachi and look a little bit at the intertestamental period, what happens between, and then we'll be on to the book of Romans place I've been looking forward to for a long time. Let's turn our attention. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And let's read together and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Daniel 9, 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books of the, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, There has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. We have not obeyed his voice. 
And now, O Lord, our God, we have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a, with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. I need to pray, so please bow with me. O Father, God, we want to ask that in this time of study, you'll give us grace. Father, I don't know that we could pray a more helpful prayer than what we have seen Daniel pray. So, oh God, all the things that he has lifted up, we also lift up, Lord. We have sinned against you. We have rebelled against you. We have disgraced your name. And Father, we ask for forgiveness. And we ask, God, that you will show mercy to us, not because of any righteousness or merit in us, but because of your compassion, oh God, we ask. Father, we desperately long to be grown and strengthened and made holy and transformed and be given eyes to see more of your glory, more of your truth. Father, please conform us to the image of Christ. Make us like new people. Renew us, O God, we pray. Every believer that is in this room, we ask, O God, that this would be a time that we are um, given eyes to see and that in seeing we be changed. And God, any in the room that has not yet repented of their sins, trusted in Christ to be saved, God, I pray that this would be the, the moment, the hour, Lord, that they come to faith. So please, God, bless this time. I need your help to preach. Please protect me from saying anything wrong or foolish and please help our attention, our minds to think, our hearts to worship, oh God. Please accomplish your good purposes, Lord, in this time. You're going to get glory from everyone. Father, it is our longing that you get glory from us as a people who joyfully obey. So please, God, bring that about. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A tragic story broke in the news this week. A man and woman who did not believe that evil exists lived out the logical conclusions of their beliefs. There's a couple who had stated that um, they'd publicly blogged, they had told their friends and such that evil is, I want to get this right, evil is a made-up concept We've intended to deal with the, the complexities of fellow humans holding values and beliefs and perspectives different from our own. It's easier to dismiss an opinion as abhorrent than strive to understand it. They rejected the Bible, rejected the Christian worldview, 
And to prove this, they went on a biking trip through Africa. They even biked through some regions where, quote, bigoted people like us Christians say that great evil exists. And the tragedy came when they were stabbed to death on their trip. They believed things about the world that are inaccurate. They believe that the world is like this, this, this image that country songs and popular celebrities had, had made popular. We're all good. The world is nice. Evil doesn't really exist. They believe the world is like this, but it's not. It's like this. They believe that human hearts are like this, but it's not. It's like this. We're all forming beliefs. We've all got worldviews, perspectives, ways that we see this world. We, we all think the world is a certain way. You have a concept of reality. We get that information from various sources. The Bible, the revelation of God to man is the only place where you will get the right perspective as God sees from heaven. The Bible displays and just describes the world to us so that we don't have misunderstandings of reality, think the world is like one way when it's like another. God tells us the world is like this. And to go even deeper, he tells you, you are like this and describes you accurately. But the most important is God shows us who he is. At the root of understanding reality, Understanding this world, understanding your life is understanding who God is and what he is like. Knowing God is at the heart of understanding reality itself. The root of, the root of every problem we have, if you trace it all the way down to the bottom, the root problem is a misunderstanding of God himself. To, to the one who will not obey God, but refuses him, the root problem is not you need to get with the program and start obeying. I mean, you do, but that's not the beginning. The beginning issue is a misunderstanding of God himself. To the one who treats Christian life trivially, treats service trivia, treats obedience in a, in a trivial kind of way, the root problem is seeing God trivially and weightlessly. The Bible is God's revelation of himself, of all the ways he's made this world, of all the ways that, that he has designed you and I, but the problems that have come in this world and who he is. And the reason I tell you that today is the Old Testament is crucial in our understanding of this world and human nature and who God is. The Old Testament is where God lays the foundations for the rest of the truths that the New Testament will come and reveal further. God reveals himself. And every part of what he's revealed is showing us him. In our study through the Old Testament, we've been seeing a lot of themes come up again. And again, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday kind of about this series. And, you know, we read through the Old Testament, but there's something about studying it that just sort of like highlights certain themes. And there, there are a few things that I didn't realize were just how much they're there. God's emphasis on kingdom. God's emphasis on the covenants. God's emphasis on repentance. But every single one of these aspects is showing us more of him. It's showing us his character. Friends, as we studied through the covenants, 
You've been coming to know God, the maker of the covenants. As we in the, in the last little while have been studying some of the, the heavy judgment and wrath that came on the two kingdoms for rebellion against God. Yeah, you're learning a lot about sin. You're learning a lot about what happens when people break the covenants. You're learning a lot about God, His character, His righteousness. And today as we see the restoration, as we see God bring His people back into the land, we are once again seeing more of God's character. Today we pick up the storyline where we left off two weeks ago. The two kingdoms of Israel and Judah have fallen. Judah was sentenced by God to 70 years of exile. And then we spent a little time in in places like Ezekiel, looking at a little bit of the time period during the exile and such. So we pick up today during the exile and we see God's hand bringing his people back into the land, just as he promised working in his providence, turning the hearts of kings to do exactly what he wants to happen to accomplish his purposes in the earth. So as we look today, so, so if you've got your bulletins and you see the sermon title there and, and the scripture, we're actually looking at a whole lot more than that. We're at some point going to touch 10 different books of the Bible. This is a very, um, this is a very happening season of time, this 70 years the 70 years where they were carried off and then coming back into the land. So we're going to touch at least 10 different books, but we'll spend the most time in Daniel, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. So we're going to divide our time, if you're taking notes and what points, two sections. We're going to spend some time with the book of Daniel to understand it, and then we're going to transition to Ezra and Nehemiah together in those things. So... Let's get started. Number one, let's talk a little bit about the book of Daniel. One of the things that's a little confusing is that there are so many events happening in this season of time that the different books have kind of overlap in some of the things that are happening. So Daniel lived a long life. Daniel was a young man when Nebuchadnezzar, okay, the ruler over Babylon, came and conquered Jerusalem, and Daniel was amongst those who was carried off from Jerusalem back to the land of Babylon. And during his lifetime, he saw the destruction of Jerusalem, which if you remember, that's described in 2 Samuel, 2 Chronicles, the book of Jeremiah, um, the book of Ezekiel. So his life is at least a part of some of those things. And then during his lifespan of of when the the book of Daniel was written, the events of the book of Ezra unfold. During the book of Ezra unfolding, the, the book of Esther and the events unfold. After this comes Nehemiah, which still fits into the timeline of Daniel. Clear as mud? We'll try to make some sense of kind of how it all fits together in things, but those are 10 books that Daniel's life is connected with in some way. So Daniel was a young man. He's carried off into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did this um, act of choosing promising young men from the various kingdoms he conquered, and he came and made them advisors, wise men, even some spiritual groups that he devised and such. And Daniel was amongst this group. Several events, and we love some of the stories from the book of Daniel. You may remember the, the, the count of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, the, the handwriting on the wall. Well, early on in the book of Daniel, there's something really significant that happens. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dream of, of, of a statue 
and he wakes up the next morning. He can tell that this has been divine in nature. So he calls for wise men, magi, spiritual guys, and he says to them, I need this dream interpreted, but to make sure you're not cheating, I want you to tell me the dream I had and then tell me the interpretation. The wise men and magi all respond, that's impossible. No one can do it. Nebuchadnezzar is furious and he decides, I'm going to kill every spiritual guy in the kingdom. You may remember the story. Daniel asked for um, a, a, a presence in front of the king. He comes, he describes the dream and its interpretation. He had a dream of a statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, midsection thighs of bronze, and then feet of iron mixed with clay. And God revealed to Daniel that this dream represents the next superpowers who would take control over this region. Um, throughout the book of Daniel, actually, God even reveals details and such about these next kingdoms who would arise. God revealed that the head of gold represented Babylon, very glorious kingdom. Uh, by the way, many historians consider Assyria, that's the nation that destroyed the northern kingdom, to be the first real superpower in history. Babylon then conquered Assyria. Babylon's the one that conquered Jerusalem. But God was revealing that another kingdom would arise after Babylon. God went on to reveal that this would be the kingdom of Medo-Persia. We're going to see that happen today. But God revealed also that after the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, there would be another kingdom, the kingdom of Greece, led by Alexander the Great. That would actually happen after the New Testament ends and before the New Testament begins. And then also the last kingdom that God described there, the one of the iron mixed with clay in the feet, shortly before the New Testament time, the Roman Empire would come to rule over this region. And so, so that's the vision. And what's significant about this is the rest of the Old Testament and then what happens after the Old Testament, it unfolds in exact detail, exactly how God revealed, sometimes in uncanny kinds of ways. God revealed details like some of the generals within Alexander the Great's army. God described certain battles that would take place and such. As an example, let me show you one place. Flip to Daniel 11. Find verse 2 there for a second. Daniel 11 verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise. And he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out towards the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants not according to his authority, which he yielded for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. That mighty king that's described there, this is Alexander the Great. Um, one of the, the, the last king of the Medo-Persian empire would, would, um, would bring an onslaught against the Greeks that left them enraged. Alexander the Great's dad would be murdered whenever he was just 20 years old. So Alexander the Great came to power at the young age of 20 and yet was able to rally the Greeks together, lead a military campaign that defeated not only Babylon, but the rest of the kingdoms throughout the whole region. And then you're told there as soon as he would arise to power, he would lose his power. Alexander the Great 
at the age of 33, passed away. Uh, you've maybe heard the story that there was a day that Alexander looked out from his balcony and wept because he had conquered every kingdom that was known at the time, and he was sad that the military campaign was over. He came to power. He had no children. It would not come to his descendants, and he actually divided up his kings to four generals. Some of the prophecies in the book of Daniel describe these four generals and battles that would take place later and such, and Daniel just describes all of this. Now, this is kind of a sub-point. doesn't really fit in, but I kind of want to connect it. So if Daniel prophesied, that these next kingdoms would rule and even details about the rulers and divisions and generals. And it came about with perfect accuracy. Isn't that a pretty compelling piece of evidence for the authenticity of the Bible? But here's what skeptics do. Skeptics want to say, well, it was a conspiracy, man. See, what happened was <laughs> these events happened and then somebody afterwards wrote the book and said it was written beforehand. So here's what's exciting. We actually have some uh, evidence for the fact that proves the book of Daniel was written before these things. So, so here's one of them. The oldest copy of a manuscript of the book of Daniel that we have. So, so, so understand this guy. The book of Daniel was written in around 530 BC. So 530 years before Jesus coming to the earth. But we don't have the original manuscript of Daniel, okay? Just like we don't have original copies of, of the original manuscript of Shakespeare's plays. What do we have? We have copies of copies, all right? So the oldest copy of a book of Daniel that we have dates to 100 BC. Well, the Roman Empire did not come to power until 60 BC. So there's 40 years, even before the Roman Empire came, that we can prove concrete evidence. You can give to your skeptic friends that the book of Daniel was written before this. But there's actually another one, Josephus. We've mentioned him a few times, the ancient historian. He actually tells an account that when Alexander the Great was, was roaming through the area and conquering kingdoms and such, that when he came to Jerusalem, a group of Jews went out to meet him and they showed him a copy of the book of Daniel and showed him where he is prophesied in the scripture. And what is interesting historically, Alexander the Great never burned Jerusalem like he did other cities there. Now, skeptics, uh, modern historians, they believe, you know, Josephus writes, they believe it, except here. <laughs> except here, because that can't happen. Because I say it can't happen based on my declaration that it can't happen, which is a logical fallacy. But anyway, I think moments like that are pretty cool to see some pieces of evidence like that. That is just one piece out of a thousand different pieces of evidence for the authenticity of the Bible. You know, as Christians, we don't base our faith on that kind of stuff, but I do get kind of excited whenever we see it as well, and this is useful in our uh, defending the scriptures and such. All right, well, coming back, other prophecies in the book of Daniel come about in history in such specific detail, skeptics are only left uh, being able to try to attribute something like this. But also during the book of Daniel, another important moment comes when uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's successor named Belshazzar um, comes to the throne, he rules over Babylon, and there's a night that he was uh, feasting and got drunk. Uh, in his feasting and reveling, they actually went and got gold and silver vessels that had been taken out of the temple at Jerusalem. They begin to irreverently uh, get drunk and revel in their partying and such, and they begin to praise the gods of gold and silver when all of a sudden, in the midst of their partying, a hand 
just a hand appears on a wall and it is writing an inscription on the wall. The Hebrew actually says that Belshazzar became so terrified he soiled himself. And they call for Daniel. Daniel comes and interprets the message that is there. God revealed the kingdom is being taken from you. And that very night, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians raided Babylon and took control over this region and became the next superpower just as Daniel had prophesied. And so one of the things that happens in the days to follow is uh, as the Medo-Persian Empire came to power, they took some of the leaders from Babylon Rather than kill them, they made them leaders in this kingdom. Daniel had risen to a place of prominence in the, Babel, in the Babylonian kingdom, and now he comes to a place of influence and leadership in the Medo-Persian empire. And Cyrus was the ruler of this Medo-Persian kingdom. Cyrus is spoken of several times in the Bible. He comes up in the book of Daniel but there's also a really great one back in the book of Isaiah, if you want to turn there. Isaiah chapter 44. I'll read it here real briefly. Isaiah 44, 28. And I, I want you to see it for a, a specific reason. There's theology taught as we see him mentioned here. Here's what I want to remind you of. Isaiah prophesied two centuries before Cyrus would be born, roughly. Two centuries before Cyrus would be born. There's a section here in Isaiah 44 where God is describing, I am the one who casts the heavens. I am the one who dry up the rivers. He's talking about his sovereignty. And then look what happens here. Isaiah 44, 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. Listen to me. When Isaiah prophesied, Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed yet. He's saying Jerusalem will be destroyed and Cyrus is going to say, Jerusalem will be built, and then the next phrase, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Hang on to that phrase. Your foundation will be laid. That is mind-blowing stuff, but to see even more, point number two, let's jump to the book of Ezra now and walk through some of this book. Book of Ezra is not next to the prophets. We're not next to Daniel. It's back after 2 Chronicles. Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. Ezra is one of the history books, not a prophetic book, so it's back with the history section. Ezra 1. Let's read the first four verses here and see what happens. Um, throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, we have a number of official decrees and the language that was given from various kings that has been documented in history here. So Ezra 1, beginning in verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among, of, among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Friends, just take a step back here and think about something. Let's make this very clear. God did not look into the future 
to see what would happen as a fortune teller. God said, I have purposes. I am decreeing this will come about. And he brings it about in this world using means. God is sovereign as the ruler of the cosmos. He is ruler over history. He is ruler over events. He is sovereign over the hearts of kings. Proverbs 22, the heart of the king is like channels of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. Friends, this is, this is a big deal because there's a view of God's sovereignty that's always trying to give us more credit and power than what we, we have. That's always trying to make God into the fortune teller who looks into the future to see what will happen. But again and again, what we see God saying is, I have purposes, I'm bringing them about. Friends, the doctrine of election is not just a New Testament doctrine. These foundations are laid even in the Old Testament that we see here. God turns Cyrus's heart. Later on in chapter six, God turns King Darius's heart. In the book of Esther, God turns King Ahasuerus's heart. His Greek name is Xerxes. In Ezra and Nehemiah, God turns Artaxerxes, his heart, to fulfill his purpose. But here's what happens in the book of Ezra. As we've seen Jeremiah prophesy, Judah was in captivity, that the whole duration from the first raid, Judah was in captivity for 70 years. God, God turns Cyrus's heart whenever he takes control to bring the Jewish people back to their land in order to rebuild. This happens in 538 BC. He gives them the decree and sends them back. And so here is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. They are about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the reestablishing of the covenant people in the covenant land. So if you think about this in the whole storyline we've been following, the, don't miss the beauty of this. The theme of the kingdom of God continues. God is bringing his covenant people back to the covenant land where they will live under his rule. In the book of Ezra, we see the building of the altar. This happens um, early on in the book. In chapter one, we have the description of people coming back. In chapter two, we have the organization of priests for the worship. And then come to chapter three there for a second. Let me read through a few verses that will kind of tell you a storyline of what's going on. So chapter three, find verse three. So they set up the altar on its foundation for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the feast of booths as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. Jump down to verse six. From the first day of the seventh month, so the seventh month of coming back, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Jump down to verse 8. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month. So we fast forwarded just a little bit here. Look at verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of King Solomon of Israel. They sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. If you track what's happening here, they come back to the city of Jerusalem. It's their intention to rebuild their lives. Many of the people who have come, this is the first time they've ever seen Jerusalem. They've been 70 years in captivity. It's only the oldest of the group who remember what it used to look like. And I also want you to see the priority here. You come back to the city of Jerusalem and it is in ruins. The walls, the defensive walls are broken down. You know, from a human perspective, it would make the most sense, human wisdom. Start with rebuilding the walls. Then we can get to the worship later. That's not the priority of God. We start with the altar. Then we go into the temple. And only after the worship has been established do we then go to the walls. The book of Ezra is about the rebuilding of the altar, the rebuilding of the temple, and then the repentance that is needed on behalf of the people. The book of Nehemiah then goes into the rebuilding of the walls. But they go through the work of the temple. Friend, you will never begin any work for God without meeting opposition from the enemy. And the Jews were met with resistance. And here's where the resistance came from. There was a popular practice that Assyria and Babylon used, kind of a psychological warfare on top of their uh, battle that they fought and such. When these empires would come and conquer a region, they would grab many of the people, not all of them, but many of the people and carry them off into exile and then bring people from other regions in so that everybody's displaced, nobody's united, there can't be this resistance. Well, even many of the Jews who did not have to leave because of exile, they fled. It's another storyline itself to follow the history of the Jewish people for the last 2,007 years in the ways that they have scattered to every inhabitable continent on this planet. And friends, every continent that they have fled to, they have known persecution. You know, we're all aware of Germany and Russia's role in that in the last century. What you may not know is that every single continent they have fled to, similar kinds of persecution has come against this people everywhere they have gone. And, and I don't want this to sound cold and do not misunderstand what I say, but I am telling you what the Bible says. Do you remember what we read in Deuteronomy 28? The blessings and the curses that would come upon them in regard to their obedience to the covenant. God said, if you rebel against me and will not keep my ways, then I will judge you. He also said, I will scatter you to the nations and I will chase you with the sword. Friends, the history of the Jewish people in this world, even after the Bible finishes, is enough to make you a believer in the authenticity of the scriptures as the prophecies that God revealed have unfolded. I know that's not really popular to bring up, but it is what the Bible shows. And there have been some Christians in history who misinterpreted what the Bible was getting at and have developed a kind of racism that is the wrong conclusion to come to. But what we do see is the fulfilling of God's warnings. God said this will happen in rebellion, but God has also promised 
a time of restoration and repentance. But as these foreign peoples would come into the land of Israel, some of the Jews began to intermarry with them. Let me bring this up again so that there's not misunderstanding. God's explanations were a Jewish man was allowed to marry a, a woman of another language and color and people group so long as the person repented of their idolatry and entered the covenant. That's always the issue. It was never about any kind of superior race kind of thing, any of this kind of stuff. The issue was repentance and being in the covenant. But the Jewish people who remained back in the land, many of them, they began to marry idolatrous peoples. They began to build lives with them and they began to fall even further and further away from the truth. When the Jewish people come out of exile and back to the land and begin to rebuild the temple and such, some of these groups who had intermarried with foreign nations, they came and they said, hey, we want to take part in all this too. And they said, you have no part of this because you are not a part of the covenant people. You, you are not in this covenant. Those groups who intermarried with the foreign nations, this is where the Samaritans came from. When you can read the New Testament and there's all of this um, uh, drama over the, the Jews and the Samaritans not getting along, this is the root of all of those things. There was such a sharp disagreement that the Jewish people developed their own culture and system and such and the Samaritans went off into the north to that middle region of the land of Israel and developed their own culture and even religious beliefs and abandoned the scriptures in many ways. Now in the New Testament, Jesus addressed the judgmental hatred that was not okay that many had toward the Samaritans. But Jesus also addressed with the Samaritans the fact that they had left the truthfulness of the scriptures and he told them their need of the Messiah. Well, all of this is going on. All of this conflict is happening. There is opposition to the building of the temple. So after Cyrus had given this decree and a group had come back and were beginning the stages of rebuilding the temple, the opposition wrote to the new king and got some legal hindrances thrown in that halted the construction of the temple. And so in the book of Ezra, there's actually a section where there's a 16-year delay in the building of the temple. The people met opposition, and they gave up. They didn't push they didn't strive to get the permissions that they needed. They just, they all went to their own homes. No one rose up to take the lead. No one rallied them together saying, let's, let's keep fighting. Let's keep going. And there's a very powerful message in the book of Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah are two prophets who lived during the era of the book of Ezra. And those books you can read and see the message that God had them preach to the people. The book of Haggai has a powerful message to the people in this day. And he addressed the fact that their zeal had fizzled. Everybody went to their own lives. It got difficult. So they went to their fields, their house projects, raising their kids, paying their bills, and neglected the work that God had given them. And they assured themselves that they were fine. And friends, they weren't fine. 
God had given them a house to build and they weren't giving effort to it. There's nothing wrong with them raising their kids, working their jobs, paying their bills, doing these things, but they had neglected the work that God had called them to do. Friends, over and over again in the Bible, we're shown that a trivial kind of attitude towards his work, a neglecting of the spiritual work that we're called to do, it's not okay. And I don't have to tell you that the application for us is really obvious. You know, friends, today, we have such a temptation to get wrapped up in our lives, get so wrapped up in our jobs, paying our bills, projects on our house, kids in sport practice and such, that we can crowd out the things of the kingdom. And scripture shows there's nothing wrong with working your job, nothing wrong with raising your kids and even some house projects and stuff. But it is when those things crowd out our zeal, it is when those things cause us to neglect the work of Building the house of God, which is a way the New Testament speaks of the Great Commission. As souls come to know Jesus Christ through the gospel, as we do the work of evangelism and missions, as we do the the spiritual work and people come to know him, the New Testament describes that as building the house of God. There's a really obvious metaphor here that God has for us. And we all know it's so easy to justify. It's so easy to look at our lives and evaluate and say, you know, I'm not committing any great sins. I'm working my job, man. It's got to work, right? You know, I'm doing my stuff. Got to take care of my house. Got to, got to take care of these things. And there is nothing wrong with those things. But it is neglect of the kingdom work. It is neglect of the work that God has called us to do that is a problem. When we treat that trivially, we're falling into the same trap that these folks did and Haggai addressed. Remember, friends, Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. Meaning the spiritual has priority over the physical because the eternal has priority over the temporal. After a 16-year break, Haggai and Zechariah, they're preaching to the people. They're calling them and rallying them. They address the opposition. They push, they, they work through the process to get the permissions that they need, the decrees and everything. And they actually get their permission from King Darius. King Darius, same king as whenever Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. Same king that comes up a few times in the book of Daniel there, another Medo-Persian king. And when they begin again, it doesn't take long. The temple is completed. You saw that weeping that took there, took place there? Those who had seen the first temple, when the foundations were laid for the new one, they grieved, remembering what the glory of Solomon's temple had looked like and seeing that what was going to take place here was not going to be anything near the glory of what once was. But the place of worship has been constructed. And then in the book of Ezra, there's about a 50-year break. Chapters 1 through 6 describe things that happened before Ezra comes on the scene. In chapter 7 of the book of Ezra, it picks up where Ezra makes his trip to there. It's actually in that 50-year break that the book of Esther unfolds and all of those events. Book of Esther, a great uh, story to read to your children. Uh, God, God raises up this young Jewish girl to be another rescuer, deliverer. A savior of her people through all these things. She became married to King Ahasuerus or his Greek name Xerxes. Well, after Xerxes, 
ruler by the name of Artaxerxes I comes to the throne, and this is the ruler who grants Ezra permission to travel to Jerusalem. And he has a mission. Flip over to Ezra 7 with me, if you will. Ezra chapter 7. Pick up in verse 6 here for a second. Let's see what happens here. Here is Ezra's mission and the reason why he comes to Jerusalem. He has been in Babylon. He has been in the place there. He's not been uh, to Jerusalem. But here's what happens. Verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given, and the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Here's what happens. Ezra feels the burden to teach and preach the scriptures. Ezra had devoted his life to studying the scriptures. Here's what happens when you do that. When you immerse your life in studying the scriptures, you will come to know God. You will come to see his glory. And when you come to see his glory, you want him. You want to obey him. You begin to yearn. You begin to have a fire build inside of you. The more you know of God, he is so glorious and beautiful. The more the fire of worship will build. And you begin to feel yearnings of like, I want everybody to know him. I want, I want everybody to bow to him. I, mean, I want all of the earth to worship him. I... I Drives me crazy that there are people not bowing to King Jesus. I want him to be saved. I want him to get the glory he's due. This builds in Ezra. This builds in him until the point he can't sit on the sidelines any longer. He wants to go to Jerusalem. See, here's one of the deals, friends. The altar has been built. The temple has been constructed. But just because there are some external forms of religion doesn't mean that the people's hearts are right. Ezra wants to go and teach, and so he gets the permission that he needs. He comes to Jerusalem. He's all excited. He's all amped up about his, his ministry. But he comes, and what he finds crushes his heart. After all that has happened, we follow the storyline, surely after all the judgment, and then the mercy that God's shown of bringing the people back into the land. After all of this, surely they'll live obediently to God. His heart is crushed as he sees rebellion against the law of God happening again. One of the greatest prayers in the Bible, Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. I, I do want to read it with you. Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. He begins to learn, but one of the specific evils is the intermarrying of the people with the, with the idolatrous peoples and abandoning the scriptures. They're leaving their Hebrew heritage and going into this idolatry and such. So verse three, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. 
Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and for our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage, for we are slaves Yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and live and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. The people hear Ezra's prayer. There is a rallying together in weeping and grieving over the sin. And a remarkable thing happens. This is another one of those kind of moments of highlight of spiritual life of Israel. There is a great repentance that happens here. But I do want you to track this. Repentance would not have come unless Ezra had reacted the way that he had. Does that make sense? When everybody's doing something and nobody's grieved or upset, yeah, deep, deep down, they know better, we know better, but when everybody's doing it, we just keep on. It is when, it is when we are shown grief over sin. It's when we get an understanding of the awfulness of sin that the awakening comes. God uses Ezra's holiness, his, his grief over evil to awaken the people to their own guilt. And when there is this awakening, then there is repentance. And the rest of the book is about the repentance. The rest of the book finishes out dealing with the spiritual life. And time goes on in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was cupbearer to Artaxerxes and he becomes grieved over the condition of Jerusalem over the fact that the walls are still broken so he seeks permission to come and rebuild the walls he travels to Jerusalem he rallies things together and together they rebuild the wall not without opposition 
Let me, let me also say, uh, Nehemiah is an amazing book on leadership. And, and, and really, even if you're going through a season of great criticism, Nehemiah will be a blessing to you. Nehemiah dealt with an onslaught of stumbling blocks, heartaches, criticism. But they rose up, they pressed forward, and they rebuilt the walls. But in all of this section, one of the things that we see is we have all these physical things happening. The altar is built. The temple is built. The walls are rebuilt. There are physical projects, but what Ezra and Nehemiah highlight and show is none of that really matters if the people's hearts are still in rebellion to God. God is not interested in mere external religious observances. God wants repentance. God wants hearts that turn to Him in worship. Hearts that long to honor Him. Hearts that obey Him, not merely by like showing up on a Sunday just to go to church and check off my box that I did this religious deed. God wants hearts that obey Him in life. God wants true worship. And there's even a section, a beautiful section in Nehemiah chapter 8. We won't look at it today where Ezra and Nehemiah stand and they preach to the people and they bring all the people out. They stand in the rain for hours as the word of God is read and then taught. And they, they break up into smaller groups and teach through the meaning of the scripture. And Ezra and Nehemiah lead them to repentance. There's some major points here about true worship, heart worship. Versus mere external worship. You know, one more tragedy hit the news this week as well. The tragedy of the newest scandal coming out in the Catholic Church. Grievous acts so horrendous it doesn't even seem possible. But it is. And it is not in hatred and hopefully not in a judgmental spirit but we have been trying to show the truth to our Catholic friends for around 700 years that the Lord takes no delight in mere external religion, in a religion that is built upon trying to earn merit before God so as to earn righteousness before Him. The Lord calls us to repentance, true worship, hearts that submit to Him in joy and in love. And friends, if you want to know the danger of mere external religion, look no further than those headlines. It is a danger. Mere external religion does not please the Lord. Merely going through some rites, some observances, our God wants repentance. And all through this section in Daniel, he prays the prayer of repentance on behalf of the people. Ezra and Nehemiah, they preach, they work so that the people will repent. Haggai and Zechariah, the book we didn't get to spend much time with today. There's a section where he speaks and he says, they have turned their hearts like flint so that they could not hear and obey my words. Friends, one of the great themes that we see throughout the storyline and theology of the Old Testament is the call to turn our hearts away from rebellion, away from stubbornness and hearts of love and humility to him. 
if you're not a Christian, friend, your great need is the need to be right with your God. Your great need is your need to be saved, your need to repent and to have your sins forgiven. God God has made a way through His Son, Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection on the cross. Your sins can be cleansed and forgiven if you will turn from your evil to the Lord and trust in Him by faith, calling out to save Him. But you and I, Christian, your and I's great need is still repentance. We do not repent one time and then it's over. We are to live a life of continuous repentance, turning again and again our hearts to the Lord. Let me close this in prayer and we'll close. Oh, Father in heaven, God, I ask that you take the truths that we've talked about today. Father, and I pray that you will give life to them. Father, I pray that your word will pierce and accomplish its effect. Father, I pray that there'll be none who are here that are not affected by your word, grow your people, have mercy on those, O God, that have not yet turned to Christ. And Father, I pray that you will bring about their salvation. Father, please continue to be at work in our congregation to make us holy, strengthen us in Christ, and live obediently to you. We ask these things through the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, A Restored Kingdom, Sort of. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.